The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org.
Thank you, Donna. Good morning, everyone. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord. I have to tell you, it's a good place to be. You know, last time I stood up here was July of 2020, and I really had no clue what was uh, ahead of me. And Don's going to talk a a little bit about this from a a biblical perspective today in the sermon, which is incredibly powerful. But I didn't know the last time I stood up here that I'd be, uh, my marriage was over. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to tell you what God did for me and how he delivered me from the depths of despair and darkness and loss. And what he has done for me, dear brothers and sisters, he will surely do for you because our God is not a respecter of persons. I do want to say a very public thank you uh, to the people in this church right now because without your prayers, I have no doubt I would not be standing here right now. Prayer is powerful and it works. And when you tell someone you're going to pray for them, please pray for them. Because that's the only thing that saved me. So thank you. God gets blamed for a lot of things that he did not do. And... um, I can understand why a bunch of people don't want to serve him if they think God wills their pain and that God causes their pain. But throughout my divorce, I never blamed him. I did question him, though, once when several well-meaning Christians told me, don't worry, Rich, God's in control and this is his will. And when I heard that, I really uh, had to seek the Lord which is the Sunday morning Christian way of saying I had a complete meltdown. And I said a lot of things to the Lord that um, I'm glad he has forgiven me for saying. Was it his will for my family to be torn apart? My heart broken and my finances devastated. Did God intentionally give me this life only to blow it up right in front of my face? And I asked him that vigorously. And he answered me, as he always does, clearly and with great love. God is not afraid of your emotion. He's not afraid of your anger or your frustration or your questioning. He's a father who loves you very much. And he showed me uh, three different examples in Scripture that answered my question. And I'm only, for the sake of time, just going to share one with you. And uh, the Bible tells us in uh, Daniel and also in Romans that God himself establishes kings and rulers. We know this. David was a king, established in God's will. His path to the throne was certainly a unique one, but God's the one that put him in there. Does that mean that everything that David did or that happened in David's life was God's will? Does the God who says, thou shalt not kill, have it in his perfect will for David to murder Uriah? Does the God who says, thou shalt not commit adultery, have in his perfect will a plan for David to commit adultery with Bathsheba? Absolutely not. The Word tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. In fact, let God be true and every man a liar. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is no respecter of persons. If adultery is wrong for you, 
and it is, by the way. It was wrong for David, too. And yet, this is our God. He used a child formed out of that marriage that had in it blood, murder, adultery. And he used that lineage, that specific lineage. David had many wives. He used that one to bring into the world our Savior, Jesus Christ. So how can that be? There is a substantial difference between God's will in a situation that has occurred or is occurring and his will for that situation to occur. Let me say that again. There is a difference between God's will in a situation that is occurring or will occur in your life and his will and plan for that situation to occur. God did not want and plan for David to commit murder, murder and adultery, but he knew that it was going to happen. And God made a way through it. He sent Nathan the prophet, and David repented. And yes, he paid a huge price for his sin, the death of that son that was conceived in adultery and murder. But God forgave and restored to him another son from the same marriage that became the greatest ruler in Israel's history, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, son of David and Bathsheba, forefather of Jesus Christ. And that is the power of our God. Amen. Just because you're in a storm doesn't mean that God caused it. But he knew it was going to be there, and he made a way right through the middle of it. And I can see this so clearly in my life. God didn't will my pain or the circumstances that caused it, but he knew that they were going to come. And he took me through the valley of the shadow of death, (laughs) straight into the glorious light of his truth. And storms look different on the other side than they do when you're in the middle of one. And as I look back, I see a clear and straight and unwavering path from the last time I stood here until this one that only God himself could have orchestrated. I had the help of an amazing therapist who didn't even want to take my case to people literally all over this world who called and spoke to me a timely word, the prayers of the people in this church and my family, my bank family, and he guided me through that storm along a path that has led me to the most spectacular human being I've ever met. And my wife, Julie. In the future, I'll be able to say more about her and I'll be able to tell more details of what happened, how God put us together. There was no way this could happen except for God. There is no way. I thought Dr. O'Quinn was a guy. Okay, I had no idea who she was. That's my wife, Dr. O'Quinn. The Bible tells us there may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And what Satan intends for evil, God will turn for good. Because all things work together for the good of them that love him. And what he has done for me, dear brothers and sisters, he will certainly do for you. So if you're in a storm, do not quit. I thank God I didn't want to quit. I didn't quit. I wanted to quit and quit and quit. And what's the point? And what's the point? And what's the point? But I didn't. And he came through for me. And guys, he'll do the same thing for you. Do not quit. Pray and trust the Lord. Because no matter what storm you're in, he has a way through it. And it's better on the other side, let me tell you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. As we take communion, I ask you to comfort us in the storms and strengthen us through your Holy Spirit. Steal our spines so that we do not give up, for we can always trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good. We hear that in church all the time. But you change the words out of order and it changes the meaning. Is God good? That's a whole different discussion. 
I mean, you turn on the news, you see this mess in Afghanistan, you hear all of the the madness about churches and, and threatened within, and maybe even for their whole lives. You see this hurricane bearing down on friends and family in, in uh, New Orleans. You got riots in Portland. You got COVID right here, death and pain. You got kids in and out of school. Maybe it's more personal. Maybe you are dealing with divorce, having to mess with an ex or child support. Maybe addiction has attacked your family. Maybe you personally deal with chronic pain. Maybe the doctor's office called and said, hey, we need to run some more tests. Maybe it's just conflict raising a teenager or a child. And somebody comes up to you at church and says, God is good. And we put that happy face on all the time. God is good. And inside you're saying, but how come I don't see it, Don? How come I don't feel that God is good? I'd like to propose a statement to you today that our greatest problem is not our circumstances. Our greatest problem is our perception of our circumstances. I'd like to challenge us today to check our eyesight as we chase lions. Maybe we need to see our circumstances through different eyes, through different lenses. We're in this series called Lion Chaser. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to read that verse again if you want to go there with me, if you're joining us online or on the radio. Welcome to Central Christian Church. Uh, 2 Samuel 23. I'm going to highly encourage you to read like chapters 21 through 20, uh, through the end of that, uh, really that book, 24. It's, it's the end of David's life. And he's building these mighty men, David's mighty men. We're focusing in on Beniah, and join me in chapter 23 and verse 20. There was also Beniah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior from Kebzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once armed only with a club, he killed a great Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Beniah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Beniah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the thirty, though he was not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. It says Beniah chased the lion. He didn't trip and fall into a pit with a lion. He went after this lion into a pit to defeat it. But that's not the only wild story that is there. If you look back up in verse 8, you're going to see a guy named Joshabim the Hakmonite, unless you're reading from the NIV, and then his name is Joshab Bashhebatheth. Wow. Okay. I'm going to like the Joshabim. It's a little easier to pronounce. Joshabim fought 800, killed 800 in one battle. And then the next guy that was one of the mighty three is a guy named Eliezer. He fought so hard that one version said the, the sword froze to his hand. He would not quit fighting. His hands, his muscles were so wrapped up in it. Another guy named Shema, he went to battle with the Philistines. His army men ran away. He stayed there and fought the Philistine army by himself and won. These are mighty, mighty men. These are the first big three that ever existed. And they were hanging on with 
the mighty men of God. God. David is pulling all these guys together because he is seeing the circumstances of their world and he's saying we need warriors and we need to trust that God is in control. Friends, our greatest problems are not our circumstances. Our greatest problems are our perception of our circumstances. And if we did an honest assessment of our prayer lives... I would be, I bet we would be amazed at how much of our prayer life is problem reduction. Does that make sense? How much of my prayer life is spent getting rid of my problems? I wonder what Benaiah's prayer life was like. I mean, we don't have it. We only have these four verses in Scripture that talk about him. But I wonder what he prayed for. Did he pray for safety and security? Did he pray, God, keep me out of pits with lions, and I don't like snow? I mean, did he, is that how he prayed? I don't know about him, but I know I would be praying, God, keep me clear of Egyptian warriors with big spears or Philistine armies. But a lot of us, we pray, God, keep me away from the rough roads ahead. Now, that is not all bad. Okay, because you're praying for some situations. We see this stuff in Afghanistan. We're praying for Cody and other military people that are that may be heading into harm's way. We're we're praying for friends that are dealing with COVID, and we want these problems raised. But how much of our personal prayer life about our life is a hedge of protection? See if you recognize any of these phrases: hedge of protection, traveling mercies. Okay, these are the phrases we've used in prayers all of our life. Be with those that are sick and traveling. Be with us again till the next appointed time. All right, we have these nice, safe phrases and these nice, safe little prayers. But what if the problems we face, what if we saw them as an opportunity to shine? You see, David is choosing these guys to protect him. Maybe he's protecting, he's praying that they will protect him and their people. Maybe David had a soft spot for Benaiah because David was once a bodyguard too. He was a shepherd boy and he was out in the fields. He went to check on his brothers at war and he, he heard about this guy named Goliath. I'm sure this story is, has skimmed past most of you. I, I'm sure you haven't heard anything about it. But this Goliath was making fun of our God and he said someone needs to shut him up and nobody would go shut him up. So he goes to Saul and he tells Saul, he said, when... When a lion or a bear would come to attack my sheep, I would chase after it and kill it. Maybe that's where Benaiah got his stuff from. But I wonder, did David, when he was out there with those sheep, did he say, God, put a hedge of protection around my sheep? Or did he say, God, make me your bold warrior to protect whatever needs to be protected? Maybe it's, I'm articulating what I believe. You see, when the lion came, did, did David huddle behind a tree and go, well, how come God didn't grant me security and safety? You hearing me? He said, I've come to a time where I've got to act. Maybe David realizes while he's staring at Goliath that God was preparing him. Every bear, every lion, that was target practice. What is he doing out there with that slingshot with those kids, with those, uh, those lions? Maybe there's a rabbit. Hey, there's a tree. Let's see if I can hit that tree. Hey, there's a rabbit. Let's see if I can hit that. It was all target practice. It was prep 
Friends, at the end of our lives, we're going to look back at every lion and every bear, and we're going to see how God was there, just exactly what Rich said. We're going to see a direct line. We can't see it when they're in the, we're in the middle of those storms, but we will see that it is our past problems that prepare us for future opportunities. I'm going to say a name, and there's a certain age group in here that will recognize this, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi, when he goes to teach Daniel-san how to fight karate, what does he teach him? He teaches him to go wash the car. How does he wax the car? Show me. We wax on and we wax off. All you people are old. All right. All right. And I'm not talking that new karate kid. That one was terrible. All right. The old one. All right. The old one. And Daniel-san, how do you paint a fence? All right. You paint a fence. All right. He was training him so when the battle came, he knew how to fight. There was a great philosopher once named Garth Brooks that wrote a song and said, My greatest gift is unanswered. Now, I don't really agree with his theology because I believe God answers every prayer, but I get his gist, you know what I'm saying? He's saying, and I think a lot of us can echo that, Oh, my goodness, if God would have said yes to that thing I asked for, all the, oh, that would have been bad. That would have been terrible. Thank you, God, because you were preparing me. Our greatest problems are not our circumstances. They are our perception of our circumstances. Instead of blaming the ref, instead of trying to find a scapegoat, instead of trying to find why, what if the problem is not the circumstances but our perspective? Maybe God is trying to get us to see things differently. I've got to prep this next statement because I want you to go with me. I started chasing a rabbit this week. It was a lot of fun. Our God sees in 360 degrees. Would anybody dis- dispute that? Our God sees everything. He walks through time and everything. We do not. Okay? Now, I get it that some moms have eyes in the back of their heads. I'm not disputing that, all right? Uh, you, you got that mom thing where you can hear where they're messing up. But our God sees in 360 degrees. But according to iHealth.com, I spent some time here this week. According to iHealth.com, man at his best has 190 degrees of vision. Okay? This is zero. This is 45. That's 90. Zero, 45, 90. That's 180. So you can go 95 degrees. If you need to do this, do it without slapping your wife. Okay? Uh, you got that much eyesight. If you've got really good eyesight, you have 195, that, or 190. That's the best you can do. But here's where it got fun. Every single one of us, even those with 20-20 vision, have what's called a blind spot. Anybody heard of a blind spot? But it, this is the fun part, is where you have a blind spot. It's at 15 degrees here and 15 degrees here. Because... Any light that goes into the optic nerve that is attached to the eye, it is attached at 15 degrees. And it cannot translate in that one spot. You have a blind spot that you can't see. And some of you are trying to find it right now. I don't think he's telling the truth. You're moving your head all the time, so you you don't see it, okay? But here's the kicker. It's right in front of us. Our blind spot is right in front of us, not behind us. Some of you are ahead of me on the metaphor. We cannot see all that God sees. 
We've been talking the last two or three weeks. We talked about making biscuits. We may not like everything that goes into them, but we like the finished product. Last week, we talked about needlepoint. We can't see the finished product from the behind the product. But God can. God can see all of those things. We cannot even see all the things that we can see. Do you get that? Do we get how ironic that is? Well, I only got 190. No, you got 189, all right? You got one spot, or 188, you got one spot on each side. The blind spot is in front of us. What if we, as the body of believers, could see the pit, the blind spot, the bad things that are happening as an opportunity? Yes, it might be rough, but we know God is going to win. Do we know God is going to win? So let's amen that. We know God is going to win. Why can't we get that in our head? There's a, a, a professor named Vicki Medbeck that wrote a book called Negotiating Without Fear. It's a business book basically to teach you how to buy a car. And, and so you can, you, know, you can negotiate without fear. It's a business book. And she spent 25 years investigating and uh, interviewing Olympic champions. And this was not her purpose in this. She was looking at what is a champion, what are, you know, how do you overcome and all this. But she said one thing that came out of the, all of this data was, was weird that was unexpected. She said that bronze medalists were quantifiably happier than silver medalists. And it said it was almost to a fault that bronze medalists were happier than silver medalists. Now, all of us sports people are going, that's wrong, all right, that, that's just wrong. But they said the, the silver medalists focused so much on how close they were to winning that they were never quite satisfied. Ah, I missed it by that much. But the bronze medalists were, realized how close they were to losing, and they were just happy to be on the medal stage, all right? Woohoo, I got a medal. I'm an Olympic, gold, you know, Olympic medalist. Bronze is still pretty cool. Our greatest problems are not our problems. Our greatest problems are the perception of our problems. But Don, you don't understand. I've messed up. I'm one of those guys that haven't been satisfied. I have scars. You know what? I guess I would bet Benaya had scars. I mean, with that kind of battle record, you don't think he's been in the ER a few hundred times? He has got all kinds of scars. Do scars discount you? No. The enemy will come and lie and say, you've messed up, you're too far gone. And that's not true. I highly encourage a book. It's called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning was written by Viktor Frankl. Uh, he was an Austrian uh, neurologist and psycho, uh, psychiatrist in 1940s in World War II. And in 1940... He was working at a place called the Rothschild Hospital. The Rothschild Hospital was helping to save Jews from German programs. Now, when we say German programs, what that meant was the Germans were eliminating anybody that wasn't perfect. Anybody that had a physical defect, anybody that had a mental defect, they wanted them killed. And this doctor was saving them and hiding them. And in 1942, he was captured. And he was sent to a concentration camp with his wife, who was eight months pregnant, and she was gassed on the first day she was there. Eight months pregnant, killed her right in front of him. In fact, he later on said he estimated 90% of the people on the transport that he came in on were probably killed the first day, the first afternoon they got there. 
he was stripped of everything, stripped of his money, of his name, of his clothing, of his pictures, of anything that had value to him. In fact, his name became a number. 119104, that was his, that was his name. They didn't even care about their names. They just had a number. He was, he was made to wear a man's clothes that were taken out of the gas chambers. He was wearing a dead man's clothes that had gas on them. And that's how he, that, it was either that or naked. And he reached in one of the inside pockets. And he found one little piece of paper and it had the Shema on it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he hung on to it. He, he had hung on to, uh, he started a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Of course, they took it from him and burned it after the war, after he survived. He ended up writing it again. And he had uh, this quote. If we could go on a couple of more slides, if we could. It had this quote on the screen. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The next one after that, please. The last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's attitude is the, you can't take that away. I don't care how oppressive they are. I don't care how much they push into you. You cannot take away my freedom to choose how I'm going to face the circumstance. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you that everything's peachy, Don. But I, I get that we're having some hard times in our country and our state. And I get that it's very easy to get discouraged and feel like nothing matters. Do you realize the way out of the pit God gives us in Scripture, the way out of the pit, and it's surprisingly simple. It, it's, it's surprisingly It's worship. Paul and Silas were in, in Acts chapter 16. They were in chains in a Philippian jail, a Philippian dungeon, actually. And this is no five-star hotel. This is a hellhole, all right? This is the worst of the worst. They are abused, and they are there because the government wouldn't listen to them. You hearing me? The government wouldn't listen to them. And i got to believe that a Middle Eastern prison is not a whole lot different than being in a pit on a snowy day with a lion. Is that, is that a fair comparison? And, and you need to understand why they were there. They were there because they helped a little girl. A little girl that was demon-possessed, they cast the demon out. But the owner of the demon-possessed girl was using her, and he, she, they didn't like it. And they went to the authorities. They got them arrested. They got them yelled at. They were yelled at. They were spit on. They were beaten with rods near death and thrown in stocks. Now, we see that story, and we hear that verse, and... And, it, and it, I think we miss how, how ugly that is. I mean, you don't have, you're beat up, you're bruised. Maybe you can't see anything out of your eyes. You're physically exhausted. You're in pain. You're drained. You have nothing left to give and no hope. Put yourself in those sandals for a minute. Is it possible? Is it within the realm of possibility that you and I could be a little peeved at God at that moment? Is it possible that we could be a little bitter about our circumstances? Go ahead. You're looking for this nod notion. Hey, God, where's the safety? Hey, God, I, where's the travel in mercies? Or how about this? This is the thanks I get, God, for doing your will, for helping this little girl. This is, this is the thanks I get. But there's one little verse 
one little verse that Jenna read a few minutes ago. Scripture has one little line that deals with pits. In Acts 16 and verse 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Can I tell you how that would be written in the Bible of Don? In like 4th Don, chapter 3, it would say something like this. Somewhere around midnight, Don was whining about his, his cuts and his circumstances. Anybody else? Maybe they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Maybe they were singing, Will you meet me here again? I'm not enough unless you come. Maybe they were singing the old hymn, Does Jesus care? I know He cares. My heart is touched. His heart is touched by my grief. Maybe they were quoting a psalm. Maybe they were singing a song they heard on Caleb. I don't know what they were singing, but I'll, I'll tell you this. They were not doing it accidentally. They did that on purpose. In spite of their circumstances, before any healing had ever been done, they were worshiping. Let me ask you, or let me challenge you, when you are physically exhausted, when you are in pain, when you are drained, when you have nothing left, don't reach for the bottle. Don't reach for the remote. Reach for your songbook. Reach for the radio knob. Reach for your phone and your Spotify app and listen to some of the song lists that Franklin puts out every week. There is another in the fire standing next to you. You are not alone. And did you notice one other thing in that, vo- in that verse in Acts chapter 16? One other part of that verse said they were praying and singing and others were listening. I mean, put yourself in that dungeon. All right, you may be in the next cell, and you've been there a week, a month, a year, who knows how long. These two guys come in, beat up so bad, it looks like they went 15 rounds with Tyson. They're all bloody. They're all in pain. You've taken beatings with a rod across your back, and then they throw you on the ground, and they put you in stocks, and there's nowhere to lean, and there's no soft bed. You're in dirt. I mean, these guys are in pain, and you're sitting in the next... The, the next cell going, well, these guys aren't long for this world. And all of a sudden you hear singing. What is the deal with these guys? What is going on? They heard them for praising. Friends, there are others listening right now. There are others listening to how you are dealing with your circumstances. Let me ask you this. Are they hearing your songs of praise? Or are they hearing your circumstances? Look, I get it. I am not so naive to believe that everything is peachy and per- perfect in New Mexico right now. It's not, okay? Every, there's a lot of stuff going crazy out there. Things are not good. But our God has never surrendered control. He has never surrendered control. Amen that. That's a good place to amen, all right? He has never surrendered control. Now, we know that, but do we know it? And do we let others know it? He is still in control. He is still good. Our God is good, even if our circumstances are not. Friends, our voices, our posts, our attitude should point to that right there. That my God has this. You see, 
The real truth of the matter is when we see that we can't see everything, we're going to see how much bigger God is. When we see and we really get the gumption to figure out, you know what, I can't control Santa Fe. I can't control Washington. I can't control the media. I can't fix anything. When I really realize and see that I can't see, then I'll see how good God is. God can see everything. God can see a way out of this mess. He saw it long before it ever started. Our trust should be in a God that is bigger than our circumstances. Here's the kicker. When, when I'm in a spiritual slump, when a lot of us are in spiritual slumps, I got a hunch most of us, nine times out of ten, we're, sur- we're focused in on the circumstances. How am I going to pay for this? This is terrible. This is awful. What are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? But when I stop and I zoom out a little bit, and I see circumstances through God's eyes, and I see people through God's eyes, when I see that they've treated me bad, but I'm going to give them grace anyway, and I see how much bigger God is than our circumstances, I see differently. Friends, our greatest problems are not our problems. They are how we see our problems. I want you to go chase lions with us. And maybe we need, as a church family, we need to chase the lion of division. We need to chase the lion of anger, the, the, the lion of hatred, because there's a whole lot of that out there. We need to be the ones that are speaking love, on purpose, worshiping, intentionally, and giving God the glory. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.